0: Welcome to Do Better Research, a learning-focused podcast about research methods. My name is Dr. Suzanne Aubrey and I'll be guiding you through research methods to become a better researcher, both for academic study and professional practice. In this episode, we'll be talking about research ethics. We'll be speaking to Fiona Ellis, co-founder of Survivors in Transition, a Suffolk-based charity who support men and women who have experienced sexual abuse in childhood, As you can imagine, Fiona has a range of ethics experience, not only from her role within SITS but also as a member of the University of Suffolk Institutional Ethics Committee. We'll also be speaking to Dr Will Thomas, Associate Professor of the Suffolk Business School, about his research and the importance he places on an embedded approach to ethics. When studies talk about research, it's very often to remind researchers and students that they need to gain ethical approval to complete primary research. But as we will hear in this episode, ethics is much more than that. It's about how we treat others and ourselves throughout the whole research process, from the design of a project all the way through to the write-up on what we do with the data we have left at the end. Sometimes people and organizations get ethics wrong. In 2014, Facebook, along with academics from Cornell and the University of California, incurred public and academic wrath when they published details of a vast experiment in which it manipulated information posted on 689,000 users' homepages and found it can make people feel more positive or negative through the process of emotional contagion. Maybe you're one of the Facebook users whose homepage content was manipulated. You wouldn't necessarily know, however, because Facebook's terms and conditions stipulate they don't have to tell users or seek their consent if they conduct an experiment like this. Facebook's attitude is just one example of a commonly held view that research conducted online doesn't have to be constrained by the ethical considerations involved in research conducted offline. We will see, however, in a later episode of this podcast, how this just isn't the case. Think about how you would feel if you learned that you've been deliberately manipulated in such a way. Does it anger or upset you, or are you not that bothered? even if you aren't that concerned by how Facebook abused you and your data, you can hopefully see why others might be, and what some of the abuses could be. Manipulating a person's emotions has a range of possibilities, and not all are good. Think back, for example, to the Milgram experiment, which measured the willingness of study participants to obey an authority figure who instructed them to perform acts conflicting with their personal conscience. I'll put a link for that study in the show notes. So Fiona, thank you so much for joining me on the Do Better Research podcast about ethics. It's, been, it's great to have you here. I really appreciate your time. Can you just outline a little bit about your role and background for the listeners?
1: So I'm the chief exec of a local Suffolk charity called Survivors in Transition who supports adult survivors of childhood sexual abuse. In terms of my involvement with um, ethics, I'm involved with the ethics committee at the university as the as the lay member. So I guess in some senses when I was first approached it was just about keeping it real really. I don't tend to come at things from an academic perspective necessarily. It's more about pragmatic stuff. That we've encountered in practice, so that's the sort of input that I have into the ethics committee. In addition to that, I've done, we've done a couple of pieces of joint research with the university, a couple of big pieces of research in the past. So obviously, I've got experience of submitting things through the ethics committee as well.
0: So obviously, I sit on the ethics committee with you and we have discussions about the kinds of projects that come through. You talk about sort keeping it real. From what kind of perspective do you approach? understanding the ethical considerations of some of these research projects. Do you kind of, is it about what's best for the institution or what's best for the participants or the researcher?
1: It's absolutely about the participants for me and from from my perspective. Sometimes I think, specifically or not, um, sometimes those are the participants in a research project are so the ones that get forgotten from an academic perspective. There's so much to consider when you're doing a research project. I think it's really easy To sort of forget the people at the core of it and to ensure that not just that the boxes are checked, but genuinely to check that you're safeguarding them, that they're really well informed throughout the process um, and critically that they've got to get out as soon as they feel uncomfortable about anything or unsure about anything. But more than anything, it's encouraging researchers to develop a real relationship if they've got, you know, subjects involved in their research. I think that's really important. It's a
0: really good point about that relationship development, isn't it? That, you know, it's not just about participant researcher. There is an interplay there. There is an interaction there that's, that's a really important part of the whole process.
1: Definitely. And I think it's more about doing with people than doing to people. And I think that, you know, one of the things hopefully most researchers find, is that if there's a different sort of attitude or approach, you're actually likely to to elicit better, more honest responses from people rather than kind of canned responses that people are telling you what they think you want to hear. So I think that relationship development is absolutely critical.
0: Again, that's a really good point, isn't it? That research is done with and not to.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, particularly for students of, of business, but social sciences, you know, we're, we're rarely doing things like medical experiments. We're not doing things that require trial and they're taking a placebo. Control groups. There you go. Yeah. That's the word I'm looking
1: for. <laughs> you see, there's so much to consider.
0: <laughs> I know. actually You know, we're not doing control groups and non. It's about building that relationship so that the, the, you said the participants do know what they're they're getting themselves into for. They know what we're doing, and ultimately the research we we try and do is to benefit them so it's important for them to be part of it not just it done to them
1: absolutely and I think that you know that ownership is a really really good point because I I mean I know from my own experience if someone gets hold of me you know if I get a cold call and someone asks me my opinion I want to know what my opinion is going to do is it going to make a difference is it just going to sit in a report on a shelf somewhere well and I I suppose I always relate it to the service users that we have at SIT and I guess we're asking them to talk about some of the most difficult things that have happened to them and for me two things need to happen around that a we need to ethically ensure that they're safeguarded through that process that that process of you know that that research has been through some kind of a quality assurance process but in some ways more importantly that they have some ownership over that and they can feel like they're making a difference so it's it's more proactive than just being just a participant in research, and you know explaining to them how important their views are, and that's just about giving people some sort of value and ownership through the process, I think.
0: I love what you say there about it being a process. Ethics—that The idea of ethics isn't just what we see in the ethics committee. It isn't just that piece of paperwork that we sign off as saying, yes, this primary research can continue or no, it needs more work. It, the ethics is embedded at every point of the design and data collection and and then beyond. So the, the kind of the results and how, what you've done with those results.
1: Absolutely. And I don't think you can impress that point enough that that you know that ethical stuff is embedded at each point in the process and ne- and needs to be considered at every sort of juncture in terms of someone's research plan it needs to be really needs to be thought through and i think you know one of the things i i always think we, we get as an organisation i think particularly in the last 5 years probably an inordinate amount of requests to be involved in all sorts of research so phd research projects large scale research projects research projects with the independent inquiry. I mean, there's such a range of them. And I've been really mindful that we've needed to develop some sort of framework around that to ensure that any research we get involved with and potentially expose our service users to is quality assured and has been through a robust ethical process. Um, otherwise, we just won't touch it with a barge pole because I think people, you know, we've seen time and time again in terms of research projects, you kind of get into this phase where suddenly everything comes together and you kind of need to crack on and do it. So we often get quite rushed requests for, oh, we need to do this research and we need to engage with 30 survivors by this time next month. And we just always kind of kick that back and slow it down and say, okay, well, there there are some processes internally that we have to go through. And I think that's something just for people to be mindful of when they're approaching organisations or potential subjects to ensure that it's not sort of forced upon them, that there's a good lead-in in terms of time. And that's all about planning, I think, really effective planning through your research project.
0: That's such a good point, and I think it's one of those things that is also really important for for students to remember. I mean, thinking about as you say that some of these projects are under time constraints. They are, you know, suddenly something just needs to get done. Data needs to be collected, but it's you've got to really think about how you're engaging those organisations and thus the people that work or work in or with those organisations, in your case, the service users, it's quite an important point to to take that step back and think about it from a process perspective.
1: Definitely. And I think almost in a sense, you need to put yourself in in service users' shoes and think about how you feel when you receive, I mean, we don't get PPI calls anymore, but how you felt when you used to get those. Nobody liked that being put in that process. So it's really about thinking about how it feels to be in that position and to be asked the things that you're asking.
0: So you talked about I know this wasn't one of the questions that I asked and I, I'm sorry but thinking about something you said earlier you talked about doing you've had, you've done some research projects with the university or, or sort of and using the university ethics committee uh, ethics process to design some of these research projects that you've done with your with your organisation with your service users would you be able to outline one of those research projects and why you think it's important as an organisation to do research
1: for us as an organisation, it's been an absolute game changer in terms of opening doors to funders, commissioners, different relationships, gaining credibility and kudos within our sector. It's absolutely changed things uh, immeasurably for us as an organisation. So we're currently doing our third piece of research with the UNI. The first one I'll just touch on briefly was a national sur- uh, online survey of survivors of sexual abuse trying to better ascertain their journeys through particularly health pathways and understanding around disclosure points and trigger points within the system. That was a really successful piece of national work. We then decided from that, and the piece I'll talk a little bit more about because there's sort of more ethical consideration to, is within our service users at SIT, we re- Recruited, I think it was 28 subjects to, to take that national survey and do a more in-depth piece of work with them around their experiences through health, particularly mental health services, what that had been like. And again, just really drilling down into the detail of what services they'd accessed, how long they'd been involved for, how did they feel they were treated through that. So we conducted in-depth interviews um, with subjects within our organisation. And that was obviously went through ethics approval at the time. And I think, yeah, really, really important at that juncture, if you're doing any any kind of interviews or face to face or talking to people, that ethical stuff, you you just can't kind of underplay it at all. It's abs- you, You've got to have it absolutely right. And one of the things I particularly enjoyed is some of the feedback and the commentary back from the Ethics Committee in terms of had we considered this or would we consider that. Um, It just gave us a completely different spin. And given that that committee is made up of a number of different people, it brings a number of different perspectives to your consideration. So, you know, we never saw any of that as, as kind of negative or trying to stop our research. Actually, continually it was seen as contributing to the quality of our research. Um, which really helped us kind of fine-tune the process in terms of talking to people about their experiences and the levels of sensitivity around the subject matter. We were talking to people about not necessarily their experience of sexual abuse, but undoubtedly we couldn't avoid that through, through the interviews. We needed to ensure that we had support in place for people should they disclose something or become distressed through that process. We needed to ensure that our interviewers were... Also really well-trained and well-supported through that process because some of the stuff that they were hearing was particularly difficult and emotive. So we needed to ensure that there was support in place for them. And the whole way around the process, just keeping on sense-checking that we had all the right things in place to ensure everyone was supported through that process.
0: I just want to pick up on two really good points you make there around ethics. The idea that the ethics process isn't just a box-ticking exercise, but it, contributes, it contributed to the quality of your research in the fact that it was sense checking it was giving you more avenues of ideas like making you think a little bit more deeply about some things i think that's a really important point but also the idea that the interviewer might need to be supported so the person collecting the data might need some additional support in and how to do that and the kinds of situations that they might come across i think that's a a fantastic point definitely and
1: i think i think it's one that's underestimated all of the time you know re- researchers think quite often that they've got their head around their subject matter. Um, They know quite a lot about it. But in my experience, something's always going to come up that's going to throw you a little bit. And I I think if you put that support in place from day one, it's just that confidence building around that, that you do have somewhere to go and someone to talk to about things that may have impacted you. And I think important to recognise that those things might not impact you at the time. It might be, we found with some of our interviews, it was days later or even weeks later, Stuff just wasn't leaving them, and they kind of needed a place just to put that or chat it through, and I guess to be reassured that it was perfectly normal that they were having the response they were given the subject matter that they were discussing. And for me, that's just a confidence thing. What we never wanted to do was have anyone in a position where they felt like they were asking a silly question or they didn't feel confident to get support if they needed it, and I think that's really important.
0: I think you're absolutely right. And from the student perspective, or from the researcher perspective, that could be as simple as having a critical friend to talk to about it, or their supervisor, or for you, it might be the researchers that are actually collecting the data, and that that person be you or, or partners within the university. So someone just having someone there that they can go to if they need anything.
1: Definitely, and I think it just negates that feeling of or I I should be able to deal with this. I'm not quite sure why I'm not dealing with it so well. Um, And I think that if that's just in place from the get-go, it makes accessing that kind of support so much easier. It just becomes a seamless part of the process rather than something people have to overthink or feel unequipped to deal with, really.
0: Fiona, that, that was fantastic. Thank you so much. No
1: trouble at all, honestly. Happy to be involved.
0: Thank you very much for joining me for a second time uh, on the Do Better Research podcast. I'm, I'm quite confident that it will work this time.
2: <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure.
0: So we'll get straight back into it. And you know, you know the routine by now. So what is it that you enjoy about doing research?
2: I think the thing that I really enjoy is just kind of satisfying a natural curiosity, really, by which uh, I mean I'm nosy. So I'm I'm kind of inquisitive and curious about the world around me and about people around me and research for me is a way of satisfying that of just trying to understand other people's point of view a little bit better, try to understand how people think and um, to look towards, I suppose, answering questions about how better management might improve things for employees and for customers. And through that, there's this kind of thread of relationships, really. I'm interested in the relationships between employees and and managers and between companies and and customers and thinking about how we can improve those. So where the problems in, in those relationships might be and what improvements or solutions might look like.
0: I like the idea that you're just you're naturally nosy. And I think that comes across from a lot of researchers that I've been interviewing. We are a nosy bunch.
2: Uh, we are indeed, yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm quite happy to stand at the window and, and sort of watch the world go by and watch what people are doing. And yeah, I, I think people who who are nosy, who um kind of naturally curious, I think they're drawn towards kind of research. They always have questions about why things are as they are. And uh, so I'm not at all surprised, really. I mean, it is a comfort to know that I'm not sort of abnormal. You're not alone. In that way, Yeah. <laughs>
0: so you have quite a varied uh, number of research projects that you've been engaged with i know that you're engaged you you particularly tend to engage with organisations outside of academia so you're quite applied focused uh, in your research interests. But I wondered if you could outline what your favourite research project has been and why.
2: Yeah, I mean so you're right. I, I've worked with a number of different organisations and in a number of different settings. I think the the favourite project so far has been one where we were looking at the experience of older shoppers for the co-op. So the East of England Co-op commissioned us to have a look at the experience that older shoppers were having. And one of the things I really liked about it was that the co-op were absolutely determined that they wanted to make a meaningful difference and they really wanted to see benefit from this work. I think it's very easy, particularly in some of the work that I've got caught up with, to be standing on the sidelines and kind of making criticism, you know, throwing metaphorical stones and not to be getting involved with the other side, which is, well, it's not enough for us just to point out how things are wrong and and how things are flawed, but to think about how things might be improved. So one of the aspects of that work I think was the co-op's commitment really to wanting to do something with that research and they were really interested in how we were going to go about working with older people. They helped us to recruit people. They wanted to listen to our findings and our suggestions. And, you know, I think that benefited them because they were able to kind of take those on board and to to think about them and to, to respond to them, not to, to do everything we recommended. But they, they have brought in new training. They have really thought about the type of um, support they can give, for example, to Older people with mobility issues, with who might be a bit more frail, um, not as able to to sort of wander around stores endlessly, that kind of thing, and um, and also to think about um, memory issues of various sorts as well. And I think that really illustrates the joy, really, of working for a commissioner, working for a, an organisation. That, um, that comes with a blank, blank sheet of paper that doesn't really have preconceptions about what they're looking to find out and is prepared to engage with researchers who can have these kind of open-ended conversations with people. And in our case, to hand over some of the control to participants, you know, it's something that I'm really keen to, to do and to explore. I think there's benefit in engaging the client group, if you like, or the participant group in shaping some of the research, that not assuming that you come into the project knowing everything um, and having all the answers, even the answers to how we're we going to find stuff out. So I think the kind of various aspects of that project that that make it stand out and make it one that sticks in my memory, but I'm also really pleased to have been a part of.
0: It really sounds like the co-op had similar values to you. I mean, at the beginning, you said that you really wanted to make a difference. You wanted to make positive uh, difference to people's lives, and the co-op came, approached the project in a similar way. They really wanted to improve the experience of that group of of their customers.
2: Yeah, and 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 that is, you know, I'm not a historian of the co-op by any stretch, but I mean, that is why the co-op was um, founded. You know, on these principles of being there for its members, and you know, the East of England co-op is still retains those um principles very strongly so i think that you know that sort of explains why they took that approach why they wanted to engage with the research in that way is because you know the the principle on which they were founded is to be there to um to support their members rather than being there to make money for faceless shareholders
0: and you talked about handing control to participants, and I know that that's something that you're, you're looking at exploring a little bit further in terms of kind of participatory research. And when we've talked about this research project before with the co op, you talk about emancipatory research. I wonder if you could just outline a little bit about what that means and what that might look like.
2: Yeah, so I mean, I think the principle of participatory research is engaging with the group of participants in terms of shaping how you're going to do the research. So maybe engaging a group of participants to determine the shape of questions or interview prompts or even a survey or whatever um, that might be used to to find out more about the topic in question and, in in, in this case, how people shop, what people's experiences of, of food and diet are. The idea of emancipation is just taking that a little bit further and really to explicitly seek to give greater voice to groups that uh, might otherwise struggle and often we refer to hard to reach groups and I think there's something problematic in that term really because it puts us as the researcher at the heart of the problem you know that there are groups of people that we struggle to engage with and, and therefore those groups are hard to reach and often I think actually it's it's really the other way around is that we are struggling to find ways to, to sort of listen to those people and, and engage with them in a way that is meaningful for them you know the, a lot of the things that we talk about in research methods classes are not things that would instantly be recognizable to people outside of, of academic settings yet when you break them down and think about what we really mean by those and they make a great deal of sense you know we talk about reliability and validity and and sort of concepts about you know how we how we generate knowledge ontology and epistemology and you know those are things that mean nothing to people outside academia more or less but if you express them in terms of the quality of information then it's very easy for people to get to grips with what you're trying to find out and and I think emancipatory research is about saying how can we find ways to give voice to people that otherwise are struggling so to refuse this idea of hard to reach groups and instead to say we're going to go out of our way to listen to people who are not generally speaking listened to and to put ourselves in in service of those people really as part of that research project to find a way to give voice to their ideas and you're right I mean I think that is something that is is tremendously important and you know it comes down back to this idea of being interested in relationships and and um you know, if if we want to make those relationships more productive, then the first thing I think we need to do is to listen to the experiences of the people that we're engaging with and really to engage with those and trying as far as possible not to bring our preconceptions to at least the initial parts of those conversations, you know, to to strive to engage with them as, as someone who is maybe a little bit naive. You know, they are the expert in in their condition and, and their lives rather than us as researchers. We need to be very conscious of that, that that kind of power dynamic, you know, us as researchers coming from the university, often with PhDs, maybe with titles which are, are, are potentially sort of imposing. You know, we need to remember that and, and we need to just to do what we can to make it easy for, for people to engage with us and feel welcome to engage and, and feel kind of respected for the opinions and ideas and, and knowledge that they have.
0: It's really interesting that you use the word power because I was talking to in the in the other interview for this podcast. I talked to Fiona from SITS um, Survivors in Transition, and she talked about the relationship between researcher and participant, and handing that power back to the participant, and making sure that we as researchers don't come to research from a position of hierarchy where we see ourselves as above the participants and knowing more about the subject. As you said, the participant is is the expert in their own experience. Yeah,
2: and I think that is a really good summary of exactly what I would think as well. You know, I think um particularly when you're working with with groups like that, I think it is it's really important that the job of the researcher is to listen to the experience of the person who is giving up their time to uh, to take part in the research. In a qualitative setting, in a, in a sort of qualitative approach, in some ways that is more straightforward. I think uh, it is still possible in, in quali- quali- sorry, quantitative research, we all get them confused, that um, <laughs> to, to do something similar and to, to engage with the participant group in terms of setting up you know, how the data collection works. But yes, I mean, particularly if you're doing anything that feels like interviews, focus groups. The challenge is to find a way to make the participant feel comfortable in sharing their experience with you and then to listen attentively to that experience.
0: So in a slightly circuitous route, because I realised I've kind of asked questions that I hadn't kind of pre-sent to you, so I'm going to try and get myself, not you, but myself back on track. I wonder if you could outline what research ethics means to you. And I know we've touched base on quite a lot of the aspects, but if you kind of summarise it for the listeners.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I think uh, rule one is treating participants and potential participants with dignity and respect. And I I don't think you go far wrong if you think about it in um, that, you know, really kind of classical way, which is how would you like to be treated yourself? What sort of information would you need before agreeing to take part in, in a research study? So informed consent is a really important idea that we give information to people that is sufficient for them to be able to understand what we're looking to do, why we're looking to do it, what being involved will mean, in, particularly in terms of their time and, and other commitments You know, I I don't do research, which is sort of sticking needles in people or testing drugs on them or anything like that. You know, that comes with its own specific issues around consent. But it is nevertheless really important that participants know what the study is. And, you know, it might might be details like who's paying for the study? What are they looking to do with it? So I've been very fortunate, generally speaking, entirely speaking, to have worked for people, worked for organisations commissioning research who have taken a, a, a fairly open stance in terms of what they're looking to find out and haven't sought to try and hide results or anything like that. But that can be a problem in some sorts of research, It's certainly a problem in, in pharmaceutical research. So informed consent, really important. Health and safety, really important. It, it, it's clearly unethical to put participants in a position of being at risk in any way. So whether that's physically, emotionally, um, or, or any other way, but also the researcher. You know, one of the important jobs of an ethics panel is to also protect the researcher and to make sure that they're not doing anything which is is dangerous. And I think there's also, and it's increasingly a problem, I think, to, um, around protecting data and identity and being really clear how data is going to be used with participants, where, where it's going to be shared, In particular, who's going to get access to to raw data or identifiable data or anything like that. But when we come to write up our studies, thinking back to those promises that we've made and ensuring that the participants are not going to be identifiable if we've promised that. So I I think all that really is is summarised by the idea of, of dignity and respect. And then this kind of increasing concern that I have, which is to say, how do, we, how do we get participants to be more actively involved in setting the direction of the study, in determining the type of conversation or the type of data collection? For example, you, know, you, you can imagine studies where there are multiple types of data collection that would reflect the preferences of, of different sorts of people that are participating. Some people might like to be interviewed. Actually, my experience is people are pretty flattered to be asked to be interviewed, you know, whether it's for a podcast or a <laughs> research study or whatever it is. It, people like the idea that their opinions are valuable. Some people might not like to be interviewed. They might prefer to write their responses or to, to talk through images or whatever it is. But in, in, um, in thinking about Um, methods of data collection and I think not necessarily in every project but in many projects there will be a power issue where we should we should be aware of those power imbalances even if it's um, a kind of uh, you know an imbalance between a researcher coming in perhaps where the participants see them as being expert and, and very knowledgeable and highly trained and very well qualified and you know that can be an issue I think where we come in from that university background. I think many people who are not from university backgrounds expect and think of university lecturers, professors, whatever, as being much more knowledgeable and and well-trained and and what have you than they really are. So I think it's our our job slightly to kind of break that, um, that image as well. I'm not sure that was a summary of what I
0: And yet, it was still a really, really good outline of the (laughs) kinds of things that we expect in a research project. And actually, I wanted to go back to one of the comments you made about sort of when it comes to write up, because I mean, I know that students, and to some extent, you know, universities think of ethics ethics as a process for going through an ethics committee, but it's not, is it? It, It's much more than that. It's much more embedded in the whole research project, not just a kind of a box ticking exercise.
2: Yeah, and it's not just students. I mean. I think there is a sense, no matter how much we like to, to think that we're not in this position, where everybody thinks about ethics as being the process of getting approval. You know, I, I complete the form, I submit the form, and someone says yes, and that's job done. And um, that is really important. Uh, and, um, you know, most universities will be very clear that there is a, a process to get approved, and you must get approval before you do your research. And if you do otherwise, then... You put yourself at risk of some sort of penalty. So that you know that is true, but actually, I think you're right that ethical research is much more than that. It is about making sure, you know, firstly and really simply, you do what you have promised to do. You know, if, if you've promised to secure informed consent in a particular way, then you do that. That so you you have that conversation, you provide that information, you you get the, the necessary form signed. But actually the process of consent is an ongoing process, that it may well be the case that, you know, in the course of a conversation with someone, you become aware that they're uncomfortable, or um, that they might become upset in some way, or, you know, visibly upset, or maybe distracted, or or whatever. And I think it's important to engage with them and and to maybe have a a conversation about whether they're still happy to, to keep going, you know. Often they will be, you know, maybe they want to break. But it, it could be that someone, you know, feels like they consented to to take part in, in something and, you know, it wasn't quite what they expected and actually they are now uncomfortable and they're struggling to find a way to to say that. So I think it's really important that as researchers we make sure that we understand ethics as being process that that sits or part of the the research process it sits alongside the study for the duration of the study and indeed after the study's finished you know um, getting rid of data um, in in the proper manner making sure that we're not uh, you know leaving people's personal details lying around that we're not keeping hold of information longer than than we need to and yet the kind of flip side of that is also true many research projects will have conditions where the data that has been generated in an anonymous fashion has to be lodged in a repository so that other people can listen read transcripts or whatever and make use of that data in the future and the sort of i think an an interesting ethical issue there you know that that we have a responsibility to people once they've agreed to give up their time to get maximum benefit from that and it would be rather odd if we said you know, you've you got to get rid of all the information and if someone else in six months time comes along and, and wants to investigate a similar sort of issue they have to go out and find another bunch of people and go out and do another bunch of interviews maybe even interview the same person again you know that would be really odd. So there are interesting questions at every point in a research study about how we treat the people involved, how we treat their data and how we balance security and, and, and um, protecting identity with getting the most from the contribution that they have made.
0: So can you outline um a research study you've conducted where the role of ethics played a really kind of important part of the design process of of the data collection, not just as a kind of a a box ticking exercise to give you permission to do the research.
2: So this is a study from a, a few years ago now, but a colleague and I were asked by the County Council to do some work around what are called preventative services. And those are a range of different types of support provided to older people, in order that they can stay living at home in other words that they don't need to go into residential care so they could be anything from help with getting up in the morning getting dressed um, maybe shopping could be with um, with meals um, with with um, getting to bed personal care all sorts of things um, really and um, we were yet again really fortunate to be working with someone at the um, at the council whose view was you know we want to do something interesting and we don 't want to just kind of repeat studies that have been done in the past. This is a an area of work that is not research barren if I can use that phrase that 's an odd phrase but there 's plenty of research out there about this and and yet we still felt there was something else we could do and so we wanted to make sure that we involved older people and representatives of older people as widely as possible. And this was really kind of think some of our early ventures into this idea of participatory research and maybe elements of that kind of emancipatory style as well. So the study was in two parts. The first was a kind of discussion between a number of different individuals and kind of representative bodies, companies, organizations, professionals um, and some older people who were in a variety of different circumstances about some of the issues that we thought um, should be addressed in the research. So asking them to reflect on on their understanding and their experiences, either as people who provided services or as um, people who either received or are, were in a position where they might be receiving services. So we as researchers saw ourselves as kind of almost secretaries to that group. You know, our job, uh, we met a couple of times, our job was to support the kind of discussion to do a certain amount of making sure we stay on track, but also to think about whether there were data sources that we needed to access Um, Could we provide information to that group that they wanted? And to allow the group, which we both kind of serviced and were part of, to arrive at a kind of agenda for conversations um, with with those older people. And to agree what the methods should be, really, uh, agree what our approach should be. Not only in terms of conducting the research, but also in terms of getting a sample, finding people that, that we were going to... Um, try and speak to and we were really fortunate that we were able to partner with a couple of voluntary groups to help us um, with that recruitment process because that can be difficult and one of the situations you can find yourself in is always working with the same individuals um, you know because they are always quick to volunteer Um, they're people you know and, and you know you have their telephone number email address or whatever So um, that was really important. Um, Once we'd done the data collection, which was interviews using the agenda that the group had identified, we came back and we tested ideas and we tested some of the themes that we'd noticed back with the original panel. And that was, I think, a very valuable part of the process because they were able to ask questions of us and ask questions of the data that we wouldn't have done. And it's one of those curious um, things about qualitative research, which is that different individuals will extract different ideas or different themes from the same group of data that reflect interests, education, circumstance, and so on. And we were able to to sort of take advantage of that in a positive way and to to get their ideas and, and to, I think, strengthen the report that we were able to produce. So the report was produced largely by the researchers, but with this really valuable input of the panel. And then the final thing, which doesn't sound like a big deal, but I think is crucial, is that everybody who participated and helped with that research process received a summary of the findings. And I think that's very important, largely because, you know, you're asking people to give up their time. And it is very easy to forget to kind of complete that circle and to include them back in in the results so they can see what came out of, of the work that they had been a part of. And if we want to make sure that that people remain willing to take part in research studies, I think it's it is important that they can see that the input that they've had made a difference and, and did did form part of, of the final it's by no means a perfect study I mean don't think any study is perfect we were really conscious about positioning ourselves and about in particular not regarding ourselves as experts and trying to avoid giving anybody the impression that we saw ourselves as experts I mean apart from anything else you know we were two researchers who were a fair distance off the kind of Older persons' experience, you know, most of the most of the quote unquote older people who were taking part were certainly older than seventy five, and you know, both of us were twenty plus years off that, and so it would be very strange, I think, for anybody to have the impression that you know, two academics twenty years off off the age group of interest would have a more valuable insight than people who were really living through that experience. And, you know, that was a conscious, explicit part of the way in which we designed that. Now, that won't always be the case, certainly in in kind of business school type research. Often, we might be more willing to offer ourselves as experts um, for various reasons, but we need to be very conscious about what we're saying um, we have expertise in, particularly if we want people to engage with us and and be open in the conversations that um, we're having.
0: That's fantastic. Thank you very much, Will. Thank you for joining me on the podcast again.
2: You're very welcome. Absolute pleasure.
0: Fiona and Will have a wonderfully empathetic approach to ethics in their work and research. Both come from very different perspectives and professional backgrounds, but they both talk about key concepts such as dignity, respect, and the balance of power. When thinking about your own research design, even if you're using secondary research, think about how you're collecting your data and using that. Are you making sure that both you and your participants are safe physically and emotionally? Are you being honest about the research you're conducting? and what you're going to be doing with the information that you gathered? And finally, are you making sure you acknowledge that your participants, no matter what you're investigating, are the experts of their own lived experience? If your answers to all of these questions are yes, then you're most of the way to ensuring an ethical approach to your own research.